Father, we desire to search your word to find out more about you, who you are, what your character is, what the characteristics we are to mimic are in the pages of Scripture. We would ask that you would fill us to overflowing with the Spirit, Lord, that we may understand, for the understanding comes from you, it does not come from within us. And we ask that you would help us in this understanding to act out what we know and understand according to your will. And help us, Lord, to turn away from the ways of the world which you have called us out of. Help us to consider ourselves dead to the things of the world. And Father, we'll trust you to work this out in us according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. So the conclusion of these questions is God's love for us is not dependent on what we do for him or on what we don't do for him. Now, the love of the world, the love that the world gives, for instance, if you have someone that provides for you more pleasure and they bring that to you, we are more likely to love them and love them for it. If we have somebody that does things for us, that acts in our interest all the time, we have a tendency to befriend them. And then in the world, the less someone loves us, we either love them less or we are indifferent towards them. Or in the world, if someone actually does us harm, we certainly love them less and we even hate them sometimes, depending on what they do. That is the love of the world. That is not God's love. Remember, God's love is not dependent on what we do or what we don't do. He loves us the same. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loves everybody the same. Let me illustrate this a little bit further. Ideally, in a marital relationship, the husband should love his wife no matter what she does for him or how she treats him. She should be willing, or he should be willing to die for her, not just in a metaphorical sense, but even literally if necessary. So no matter how the wife acts, no matter what she does, when the husband stands there and takes that marital vow, I will love you till death do us part. He may wish that is a little sooner, but he will simply say, till death do us part. I will love and cherish and all of those things, no matter what her response is, no matter how she treats him. Now, according to scripture, the desire of the woman in Genesis, her desire will be for him. Remember what that means? It's not simply that, oh, I love my husband, I want to see him. That's not what it means. It means she wants to rule him. She wants to make sure he does her will. And whatever she has to do to get him to do her will, she will do. Whether it's being angry, whether it's being stiff-necked, whether it's being whiny, whether it's encouraging him, oh, because I love you, you'll do this for me, that type, you know, the manipulation, all that stuff, that's part of the curse. That's the natural bent of women. Natural bent of men is to naturally be harsh and rule over the woman, and that's what the scripture says. That's the second part of the curse. He will rule over you. <coughs> and we have to try to abandon that and get on to what God says. And if the husband is loving sacrificially, no matter what the wife does, he continues to love her and even die for her, even literally if necessary. That is God's model. Now, if we truly belong to Jesus, and if we are the bride of Christ, no matter what we do or fail to do, there isn't anything that will cause God's love for us to be less. Nothing whatsoever. And that's what the husband is to model here on earth. 
Now, in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, we know that God not only loves us, but he loves those who are his enemies as well. Now, if we're in the world, we have a tendency not only to not love our enemies, but to hate them. But Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, You see, just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we know that when we are sinners, according to Romans 8, 7, we are hostile to God. We are his enemies. And so God died for us. Jesus Christ, God in human form, died for us when we were his enemies. And he did so for our benefit. Now, let me expand on this a little more. In the world, <clears throat> say you have the employer-employee relationship. That is not based on love whatsoever. The employee's value to the employer is based solely on what they can produce. You are valuable to me because you produce a lot and you benefit the company and by extension you benefit me. Same thing with the employee. Their value to the employer is based solely on what they provide. So the employer-employer-employee relationship is based on performance, what you will do, and it's based on self-interest. I will accept you, I will honor you based on what you do for me. The employer uh, gives the wage, the, employer, the employee receives the wage. So it's a symbiotic relationship there. And both benefit in the long run. Then take the husband and wife again. The husband's value to the wife, and this is in the world, the husband's value to the wife is based on what he provides for her, companionship, comfort, possessions, children, performance, tasks, how he meets her needs. How many times in the world does somebody say, I'm done with you. I'm the, you, you are not a good husband, so I'm out of here. And that's what the wife would say, or the husband could say the same thing. But the wife's value to the husband is based on respect, companionship, physical relationship, submission. It is also a performance-based relationship. And so you see both the employer-employee and the husband and the wife in the world, it's based on what you do. And that's how you are accepted. If you do what is right in the eyes of the other person, then the relationship seems to go pretty smoothly. But that's not how God loves us. It's not based on performance. It's not based on what we do. And when marriages break up, it usually, now not always, but it is usually because someone is not getting what they want. All you have to do is go to James chapter 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you. I think it's 4. And he says, you want something, you don't get it. You kill and you covet and you still not get what you want. You ask God for it. And he says, no, you just want to heap it upon yourself. And so all of these things that you might want, that we want in our flesh, we simply start to argue and fight if we don't get it. And that's what happens in a marriage that dissolves. And that's generally speaking. For instance, I want faithfulness and you haven't been faithful. I want companionship and you are never there. I want respect and all you do is disrespect me. I want love and you are not loving. For the world's perspective, these are certainly legit reasons for marriages to dissolve. But these are not all legit reasons for marriage to dissolve. Now, the first one there, the adultery, God provides for that. If somebody commits adultery for divorce, he says, you know, I'm going to give you this because it, it's so bad. It re wrecks the relationship so bad 
but he never commands it. God never commands divorce. If there is room for forgiveness and reconciliation, he wants to go that route. Now, this idea of being loved based on what you do or what you provide, this was common even in the Old Testament. If you remember the guy Jacob, remember you had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from Jacob, you had the 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Jacob had two wives. Remember what was the name of the first one that he was deceived and receiving? Leah. What was the name of the second one? Rachel. And Rachel was beautiful, but Leah had weak eyes. It is thought that the weak eyes doesn't mean she was not beautiful, that she had blue eyes instead of brown eyes or really dark eyes. We don't know exactly if that was the case or if she just simply wasn't pretty like Rachel, her sister. But when they, when Jacob was deceived and Leah was there, God knew that he was, or she wasn't as loved as Rachel. And so what God did is he closed up the womb of Rachel where she could not have children. And Leah, she was popping them out left and right, like four kids all at once. And, and she thought, well, if I do this, if I give Jacob sons, he will love me more. And it goes on in Genesis chapter 29, verses 31 through 35. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard me and I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, then stopped having children. So so she thought, boy, Jacob's going to love me now because I've given him all these kids. Have you ever heard or seen in movies or known of somebody that said, you know, we wanted to draw closer together, so we decided to have children. That is the wrong reason to have children. If anything happens when you have children is you have a tendency to grow apart a little bit. Do we spank? Do we not spank? Do we give them this food? Do we let them watch TV? Do we give them their own phone at age eight? You know, what, what do we do? And then arguments ensue after that. And how do you discipline? Where do you grow them up? Do you t- send them to public school? Do you homeschool them? What do you do? And so everything becomes much more complicated. And instead of juggling like three balls in the air, you have a dozen of them and you're throwing them all up there trying to keep everything in balance. And then on top of that, you're as tired as you can possibly be, especially the more kids you have, the more tired you are. I I remember um, when Patty and I, we started popping out kids left and right. And... I'd come, she'd whip those kids into shape. We're going to do this. And I'd come home. She goes, you bath with them. And I would, okay. And I'd go into the bathroom, give them bath. She's fixing dinner. And by the time all the kids were finally down, we said prayers with them. They're in bed and we get in we just, uh, and you fall back in bed. And then it's up at 4.30 in the morning and you just start the whole thing all over again. And you're constantly tired. My daughter and son-in-law are experiencing this right now. My son-in-law looks at my daughter and says, 
what are you made of? Because she gets two hours of sleep and she's just going, you know, ever ready bunny. And she has to get things done and he's just dying uh, because he's tired so much. And, and as you get older, it's more fun to sit back and look and just laugh <laughs> because they're having to struggle through what you struggled through and you have compassion on them. But, but you see how it complicates things when you have kids? It doesn't make somebody necessarily love you more. When the baby arrives... Does the wife turn to the husband and say, do you love me more now? It shouldn't be that way. He should love her regardless of what she provides for him, if it's children or something else. And then, you know, why do couples move in together? I have it here in my message before marriage. Well, the world's response is because we love each other. God's response is, because of sex, lust, self-desire, not because we love. It is a self-interest. You know, there, um, there's been a couple of couples in the past that they, they've come to the church, and they ended up going through counseling with me, and they just said, what do we do? We want to make this right. We want to um, be in the right line with you and with God and, and you know, the church and everyone else and what God deems is right and appropriate. And they have said, well, we already have a child together. We're financially connected together. Our bank accounts are all together. What do we do? And we'd give them counsel what to do. We'd move on from there. And it it was great when they decided they wanted to do it God's way. I even knew a pastor. I knew a pastor of a home church. This is a church that doesn't meet in a building. He decided to have it in his home. That was never married but lived with his girlfriend. This is a pastor, a Christian pastor. He stated that the world had no authority when it comes to giving approval for marriage. That it's not the government's job to determine who's married. It's God's job. And so they moved in together. They considered themselves married in the eyes of God. They lived together for years until it didn't work out. And then they just separated. There was no divorce necessary. And they didn't need a divorce from the government because the government has no or had no authority in such matters. And I thought to myself, how did this guy who is a pastor come to that conclusion you know in the beginning who is the 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 supreme court justice in the beginning jesus christ he said a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and the two will become one flesh in other words it's recognized that they are married that's what the scripture says and in the day and age that we live in now we have redefined marriage years ago i told you when uh, barack obama was president that this is a move to destroy the meaning of marriage when he allowed homosexuality and the gay marriage uh, to come in. And I said, this is not God's design. This is a design to change the definition of marriage. And then there's polyamory. Uh, Patty and I, we once went to an Old Globe production. It was a, a funny, you know, play. We, we like to go to plays every once in a while. And this was a good play. And as we sat down, right in front of us was this man, handsome man, debonair man. And on his, as we were facing the stage there in front of us, on his left hand was a woman. And on his right hand was a young man. And, you know, we're watching the play and we're getting distracted a little bit because he puts his arm around the woman. Then he puts his arm around the man. And as he whispers into the ear of the woman... He whispers the same into the ear of the young man. And you could tell it was a polyamorous relationship. 
And I thought, wow. And this was years ago. It was probably five, ten years ago we saw that. And that's not God's design for marriage. And I'm, I'm sure that that's going to be allowed soon. I know, what's that? Um, uh, the one guy who has several wives in one house and each floor is dedicated to the different woman. And it's like, but, no, that's not what God has in store. It's one man, one woman, for life. That's in the end of story. And, and so when God says that, the world would say, no. And I just saw a video of all these kids, young kids, probably about seven or eight. They're talking about how, you know, you can marry anyone you want. That's stupid that you would not allow anyone to marry anyone, whoever they wanted to marry. And that's not God's design. Now, our problem with all of this is the world loves this. God says, no, it's not acceptable. But we are conflicted because we have people that we love that want to be in these relationships. And God calls us to love them. But God also calls us to say, no, this is not right. This is not God's will. And the purpose for us is to conform to God's will. But the, the people who desire to, to conform to God's will must not be deceived into thinking what I do causes God to love me more. Uh, there's other things associated with that, but I want to move on. Uh, Probably the best example, generally speaking, of a relationship that is closest to the type of relationship that represents God's love for us at its best is the relationship between a mother and a child. That is, I believe, the closest thing on earth that you can come to that represents God's love for us. No matter what the child does or does not do, the mother still loves the child. If the child makes poor choices that affects them adversely, the mother still loves the child. If the child does harm to others, the mother is grieved but still loves the child. You know, if they're thrown in prison, the mother still loves the child. Uh, this is primarily because the mother gave birth to the child. You know, the child growing up in the belly, the uterus of the mom. You women who have had children, you know this. And you lay down at night when you're fully pregnant, you know, pushing maximum density, and you see alien just kind of move across your stomach, goes back and forth. And you go, look at that. Oh, that's a foot right there. That foot is just kind of pressing against the abdomen. It's kind of cool. And, and she experiences childbirth, you know. And, and, it's, and she looks at the child, and even Scripture says... During the pain of childbirth, once she gets through, the woman forgets about it as soon as she has the joy of seeing the newborn child. And they lay the child on the stomach or they bring it around to the mom's face. And, you know, it, it's a special moment. And that mom, that mother, bonds with the child. In Isaiah 49, God even references this. He says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. And have no compassion on the child she has born? The answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. Though she may forget, I will not forget you. So if it's possible for the mother to forget their child when they have given birth to them, even if that happens, God will never for forget us, not one of us. That's how much he loves us. And so he makes that comparison. When we are given eternal life, we become children of God. God, quote, gives birth to us, so to speak. Remember, we are supposed to be born again. 
And that, that phrase, uh, back in the 80s and 90s, you know, it became real popular, being born again. What does being born again mean? Remember, Pastor Greg Laurie, he even made a little uh, track, <clears throat> excuse me, a track with Ben Born Again. And it, and it described who he was, and it gave the idea of salvation, what salvation was, how you get saved, saved from this world. That's the good news. The bad news is everybody is destined uh, to be under the curse and go to hell, but you can get out from under that curse. Being born again means you become a child of God, and you are no longer under the curse. And if God gave birth to us, he gave us new life. We are called born again. God is our father. He loves us more than a mother could ever love her own child. You see how that works? That's the connection there. So again, just to summarize, our love for God is based on what we get from him. But God's love for us is not based on anything except for his goodness. He looks at us and he says, I love you no matter what. And there are portions in scripture where God says he hates certain people. Like, for instance, in Proverbs chapter 6. There are six things that the Lord does hate. Yes, there are seven that are detestable. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill, and a heart that devises wicked schemes. And those are all people. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. A false witness who pours out lies. And a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. There are people there God says he hates. Now, trying to figure that out, how God so loved the world and how he hates certain people, that's a whole Bible study in itself. But just know that God is not willing that any should perish. God so loved the world. God loves everyone, including his enemies, which he died for. And when he came here, he was forsaken by everybody. Even his disciples, the closest ones, left him. But he still loved them. And he restored Peter, who denied him three times. Remember that? And he wanted the disciples to go out into the world and tell the whole world about God's love and grace and what he has in store for them. And so this is all done without merit on the part of the individual. There's no merit that they give to God where God says, oh, I have to love you now. He just says, I simply love you. So that's the summarization. Now getting to the crux of what's going on in Colossians. There were people in the church of Colossae, they were somehow under the false impression that the more they did, the more they sacrificed, the more God would be pleased with them. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 11, circumcision is alluded to. Remember the Judaizers are going around, book of Galatians. Book of Galatians, the Judaizers said, oh, you have to be circumcised as well and follow some of the things in the Old Testament law. Also, they altered their diet or their eating habits. In chapter 2, verse 16, it alludes to that. So circumcision, altering their diet to be based on the Old Testament, religious observances or certain ceremonies of special days, the Sabbath days, they were being deceived into thinking, well, if we do these special days, observe them, and we follow these festivals, and we don't eat certain foods, and then there were some who were falsely humble. They acted humble on the outside, but they were not humble on the inside, and they falsely worshipped angels, and they thought that that was more holy, more spiritual. Or they denied themselves. They lived a life of asceticism, like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And so there's people that believe, well, you know, if I don't, shrink, if I don't drink, if I don't smoke, if I don't um, uh, dance, if I don't go to movies, if I wear a suit on Sunday, especially with a tie, and the women wear dresses, and we get all these things to conform to what we think is holy, well, then God will accept us more. It doesn't work like that. 
And that's what the Colossians were doing. If I get circumcised, God loves me more. I am more holy if I do these things. It is not true. Holiness that we have is given to us by God. We cannot gin up our own holiness. I'm more holy now because I took a shower. I am clean. I am cleansed. That's not how it works. Oh, I brushed my teeth and therefore my teeth are clean and I am been cleansed. No, that's not how it works. You are not holy or more holy based on what you do. You are holy because God says, I now consider you holy. He takes his righteousness, his goodness, and he imputes it to us. He says, you are now good in and of yourselves. You are not. But I'm going to take my goodness, put it in you, and that's what makes you good. You are not good because you think you're good. Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, they're really a good person? Ixnay on that. God says, there's no one good, no one righteous, no one who does the will of God. And so that's what the Colossian error was. They thought that if they just did certain things, God would consider them more holy. Remember, no matter how bad a person is a sinner, no matter what sin they commit, no matter what they do to disgrace themselves and to disgrace their family, God says, I still love you. And for us to get a hold of that, we don't do that by nature. Remember the husbands and wives? We don't do that by nature. Do you get upset when your husband or wife doesn't act the way you want them to? And, well, you might have a good reason for being upset, but do you withhold love? Do you withhold sacrifice from them? Do you withhold respect? Do you withhold the warmth and affection because you're not doing what I want, therefore I'm going to be mad at you, and I'm going to let you know this is going to be a good three-day mad. Remember I told you uh, years ago, uh, when you could go into the airport and you didn't have to go through TSA, I took Patty on a surprise trip, and... I lied to her on purpose, and I told her that I couldn't take our son who was supposed to go to Hawaii uh, to train to work in a restaurant, and that's where the training center was, and we were going to send him off, and I made up an excuse at the last moment. I said, I can't make it to the airport. Oh, she, she was upset just a little that I wasn't going to be there to see our son off. And then at the last minute, I come running around when they're the last call to get on the plane. I was going to take her to Hawaii. I wanted to surprise her. And I pulled it off and I pull up. She sees me running around the corner and I could see her eyes, daggers, you know, like, you, you showed up. What are you doing here? And, and when I came around, I got down on my knees. I grabbed her hands and her face still was what are you doing here? And, and I grabbed her hands and I said, first, will you forgive me for lying to you? And she didn't know what to say. But I said, Scotty is not going to Hawaii. We are going to Hawaii. And she could not comprehend what I had said. And it was kind of like a fog. And she kind of half smiled and she goes, what? You know, she was still in, this is going to be a week mad. And, and it, it turned into just about a minute. And in the next five minutes, the girls started crying because mommy was leaving and they didn't know it. Or Scotty knew. And, and so we got on the plane. We sit down on the plane and she's kind of giddy. And she, she's looking around. She goes, we're going to Hawaii? I said, yeah, we're going to Hawaii. And it was for her birthday. It was a surprise. And she couldn't believe it. But... I wanted to make sure that she knew she was loved at that particular point, but she was going to be mad in spite of that before that. And I've done the same thing. 
you know, she hasn't done something for me. You know, okay, I'm going to let her know I'm in. I'm just going to not talk. That's what I'm going to. I'm not going to say anything. You know, you, you can go to bed and you don't say a word to each other. Just turn over and you get your sheets and you pull them over. And, and that's what husbands and wives do. That's, that's the modus operandi of the world. And if we follow Christ, that shouldn't be the case. It shouldn't be the case where we say, my love for you is conditional upon what you do for me and how you satisfy me. So we are all guilty of this. And whether it's husbands and wives or it's friends and neighbors, all of that applies to us, whether it's employee and employer relationships or vice versa. God tells us to love unconditionally no matter what somebody does or does not do or how they harm us or how they bless us and it is not contingent on circumcision altering diet religious observance false humility denial asceticism all of that stuff this is what is so different about jesus christ and the world the world says no i love you for what you do and what you can do for me and jesus says no I love you because you can't do anything for me and you never will be able to do anything for me, but I will enable you to do so. Now, going on, this is pointed out for us back in verse 20 of chapter 2. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though do you still belong to it? Do you submit to its rules? Do you uh, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom in their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, and they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. So you think you're going to perfect the flesh by doing all these other acts, and God says no. It, but since you have died with Christ to the basic principles of the world and this idea of death, now this is a metaphorical death that we are referring to here, if Colossians 3.3 also says this, for if you died, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In other words, everything we are, everything we do, we are to forsake, consider dead, and we take on the life of Christ. Now, not that we can become God or anything like that, but what he would do, that's what we do. His will becomes our will, and our former will is to be put to death and we are to practice this dying every day first corinthians fifteen thirty one. paul said i die every day i mean that brothers just as surely as i glory over you in christ jesus our lord he practiced dying every day have you ever gone without food just try it go without food for a day or two or maybe three and see what your body does your body will say feed me and you'll go no and you better feed me now. Here's a little pain to remind you. Feed me. And, and your body demands things. But you are supposed to be the one who is able to deny the things of the world. Now, you can't deny food for the rest of your life. God built that into us. But there are other things, your wants and desires. And God says, deny yourself. And you go, no, I don't want to. I want this. I'm going to do this. I deserve this. I deserve a break today. You know, Toyota, whatever. I did it my way. All of those things apply as far as the world is concerned. But God says, no, do without them. God has given us a spirit of self-control. So we are to, in fact, die every day. We are told to think that we are dead. 
In Romans chapter 6, verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So not only are we to consider ourselves dead, but we're to think, I'm dead. I'm dead man walking. That's it. The flesh gets no room to carry out its desires, and I'm supposed to live for Christ, have that spiritual life. Now, there is the earthly nature. It is spelled out that Paul might explain his opposition to the hollow and deceptive fallacy or philosophy. That's, that's why Paul said, you know, we have to die, and there's this philosophy that says no. Like the, remember I talked about the Epicureans? The Epicureans said, whatever brings you pleasure, that's what you should do. And the Stoics said, no, we want order and stability in life and the logos and all that. I explained all that a couple of weeks ago. But the, the Epicureans, whatever brought pleasure, just do it and do it wholeheartedly with your full strength and force. And that will satisfy you. And God says, no, that doesn't satisfy you. That is actually what will lead to misery. And so Paul was using this argument here to go against the philosophy of the Epicureans. Now, we do have this new life uh, it, that is in Christ. And as Christians, we have been called to live this new life. It, it means there's a complete change. Do you live the same as you, do, as you did when you were six years old? You don't. You matured. You don't have to go to somebody and ask for some food. You make money, you go buy food, you feed yourself. Uh, Does somebody have to tie your shoes anymore? Well, maybe they do. Maybe you have slip-ons for that reason, some vans that you carry. I don't like to tie my shoes anymore. Uh, Does somebody else comb your hair? Obviously not, some of you. I'm just kidding. But you, you get this idea, you know, you grow up, you change, you get this new life, you become responsible, you take on the responsibility that you know is right and good and just and fair and all of that, you take it on. You change from when you were a child. Well, the same thing happens to us when we get saved. We change from when we're in the world to being in the kingdom of God. And God says, live like this. Do not live like you were in the world. In Romans chapter 6, verse 2, we are called to live this new life. He says, or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. That's symbolic. We go into Christ, we experience his death, and we come out when we're baptized in the water. We are therefore buried with him through baptism in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's what he wants us to do. He doesn't want us to live the old life. This life is not your own. It belongs to Jesus Christ. He bought us with a price. He paid for us with a price. He ransomed us. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So whatever you do with your body, you're to honor God in that effort. If you work, don't work for your employer. Work for God. If you are praying, don't pray for your own benefit necessarily. Pray because God wants you to pray for that particular thing. I remember praying, should I marry Patty? And God answered me. And he said, absolutely, she's the one. Bing, 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 neon lights, all that kind of stuff. And he answered the prayer. Should I start the church? Yes, same thing, neon lights, bing, bing, bing. It it happened that way. He wanted me to pray those things. I prayed those things according to his will. And he made it happen. Same thing for you guys. Should you take on this job? Pray about it. He will answer. Lights, flashing, neons, all that stuff will take place. My son, who doesn't go to... A church right now. I'm still praying for him that he will. He he reached out to God and he asked God for an answer for something. 
And he answered. And he wants me to tell about He wants to tell me about it. And I haven't talked to him yet. But he, he goes, it's so cool. I'm still on cloud nine that God answered this prayer for me. He calls him the big J is what he calls him. And so he, he's going to tell me about it. I can't wait. I'm happy to share that with you too, that he actually reached out to God to find out something and God answered him. And he is just thrilled about this. And so hopefully he'll fall in line and follow through with what God has answered for him in his question. And our life is to be dedicated to serving God and loving others. That's the first and second commandment. Love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's what God commands us to do. First Corinthians 10, 24 says, Nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. And Philippians 2, 3, and 4, Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And if you think you're spiritual or something and you think you're more mature, you're to bear up with the failings of the weak. Romans chapter 15, verse 1. It says those who have a hard time with something, don't trip them up by exercising your freedom, thinking you have the freedom to carry out, to do this thing, when they are stumbled by your actions. God says, just don't do whatever stumbles them. If you think you have the freedom to do something, don't let that be spoken evil of. Just put it away for a while and do not stumble your brother. That is loving as God loves us. That's what we're supposed to do. So how do we live this new life in Christ? And I'm going to get to a real practical application on this, but we are to continually put to death the sinful nature. Now, when we do this, (coughs) this does not mean God is going to love us more. He says, since you belong to the kingdom and I love you without, with enduring love, it's eternal love. It's never going to go away, but I'm going to ask you to do these things. He not only asks us to do these things, But he commands it. It's in the imperative mood. If you go to the original language in the Greek, it just says, this is a command. Do it. Do this thing. And he says, continually put to death the sinful nature. Verse 5 in Colossians chapter 3. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Let me read that again. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, these things that I just read to you, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. That's lived in the world. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger. Now this is displeasure to the point of sin. Rage. Malice. Slander, that's blasphemy against God or others, and filthy language, that is obscene speech, that is which is below the standard of decency, especially about being sexually explicit. And put away slander from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. So keep in mind, the predicate for all of this is God loves us no matter what we do or don't do. But as you are a a member of his kingdom, you have this new life in you. These are the directives we need to follow. Okay, He's not going to love us less or more if we do or don't accomplish them. But he says, this is my will for you in Christ Jesus. So he says away, he says, put away all impurity or uncleanness as he defines it. 
not as we define it. And he, he talks about the physical impurity and in a moral sense, the impurity of lustful, luxurious, profligate, or extravagant, wasteful living used with impure motives. All of that stuff, we're to put it away. We're not to go to excess with the things of the world. We're to actually consider those things dead to us. And then he says, clean up your mouth. You know, if, if, and that was one thing that the Lord was able to uh, grant me permission to get rid of. But that doesn't mean I am perfect. I am certainly not perfect. I'm probably more guilty than all of you in here of committing sins because I know. I know Jesus. I I know the word, what the word says, and yet I still do what I don't want to do. And the very things I don't want to do, those are the very things that I do. And most of those are right here in the noggin between the two ears. That's where the sin takes place. And I know it's wrong, but yet my flesh just desires it so much. It feels so good to get involved in anger and railing and divisiveness and all. My flesh loves it. But God says, no, <clears throat> don't be involved in that. James 3.22 says, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep the whole body in check. Well, I certainly haven't been perfect in that either. <clears throat> you know, but this idea of making your speech not conform to what the communal standard is, the community standard. I don't know about you, <clears throat> but when I was growing up, and with my son as well, uh, my parents threatened me. If you say any dirty words, you know what they did, right? Wash your mouth out with soap, clean that thing up. You know, and, and that's what they did. They did not want me or my brothers talking in a, a terrible way, uh, uh, off-color way. <clears throat> but then, you know, I, I occasionally will see um, a movie or something and I'll watch somebody on screen who's a Christian. And I see them taking God's name in vain or just cussing up a storm. And, you know, it just, it's like being prodded. I, I don't know. Like when you get your finger pricked with a, a needle to take blood, what do you do? You just sit there, no big deal. Or you go, <laughs> like, a little bit. Or they take blood. And you know, you're, okay, wiggle your toes and don't think about it. And then in goes that needle and you go, <laughs> as it goes in. It, it's like that when I hear somebody who I know is a believer and they decide to use foul language or take God's name in vain. It's the same thing. <clears throat> and so God says, put that away. Uh, hopefully, you will conduct yourself in such a way, no matter what environment you find yourself in, that people say to you, you don't even cuss. What's with you? You missed a goody two-shoes? You know, so, say, well, actually, yeah, I don't because of Christ. I don't cuss because of him. He asked me to live a new life. And also... Love your fellow man with no race distinctions. He puts this in scripture. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but all, but Christ is in all. Excuse me. But Christ is all and is in all. So God so loved the world, the nations, the different distinct races. He loves them all. And he says, make no distinction in this. God does not make a distinction. And then he tells us to walk in the Spirit, verse 12. And what does this mean, to walk in the Spirit? I'll explain that in a moment. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, 
gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So walking in the Spirit means you are exercising these things. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. When somebody cuts you off on the freeway, thank you, Lord, for that test. I hopefully I have, I have passed it with flying colors and I wish for them a blessing on today. Obviously, they are in a hurry. So may you bless them on their day of speeding to work. Can you do that? I have a hard time. I think I fail more often than I, I succeed on that. But you get the idea. These, these are real world actions that we're supposed to take. And Galatians 5.22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there is no law. So that's how we're supposed to act all the time. Verse 17 tells us we are also supposed to worship God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In other words, you turn to him, you worship, and you say, thank you, God, for doing this. We, scripture tells us we are to give God thanks continually, without ceasing. Thank you for the water. Thank you for the food. Thank you for my vehicle. Thank you for my health. Thank you for my children. I mean, you can go and thank you. I didn't have to pay so much in taxes. You know, All of these things we can give God thanks for. Now we're going to apply all of this. Let me give the premise of all of it, the predicate. God loves us no matter what we do or don't do. If we are his children, his love will never abandon us. He loves us more than a mother loves her newborn child or even her adult child. That's how God loves us. It is not predicated on our performance. Anything we do, the number of times you go to church, the number of times you pray, the number of books of the Bible you read, the number of extra biblical works you read, all of that, no matter what you listen to, <clears throat> all of that, it does not the predicate for how God loves us. He loves us unconditionally. But the world <clears throat> loves just the opposite. And the world, when they look at those who love Christ, they hate them for what they do and what they support. Now, as a believer, we're supposed to fall in line with what God says is good, what, what God says is just. He doesn't love us any more or any less if we don't, but as standard, it remains forever. It does not change. God doesn't change like shifting shadows. If he says murder is wrong, it's always wrong throughout all time, all cultures, all peoples, forever. It doesn't change. <clears throat> it is what is known as an absolute truth. Remember, we are living in a postmodern society and that means there is no absolute truth and of course i told you i think last week what is what's the question you ask them is that an absolute truth statement that there is no absolute truth and you can see how ridiculous that is but <clears throat> we live in that type of society now that truth is whatever we want it to be or whatever the community dictates that's the truth and god says no uh, time out out of the pool that's not correct this is what's correct. Now, I want to give you some examples on this. If we are successful in this endeavor, as I told you, the world will hate you. 
Scripture tells us that a couple of times. Jesus told us, like in the Gospel of John, the world will hate you because it hated me. Everything that he stood for, that's why the world killed God in human form. They hated what he stood for. And so he says, do not think it strange that the world hates you. In Matthew chapter 5, when he goes through the Beatitudes, he says, do not think it strange. When you're persecuted, so were the prophets before you. They were persecuted in the same way. So if you live for Christ, you will suffer persecution. Your family members first, your friends second, and the world third will hate you for following Christ. They will ridicule you if they are in the world. Even some Christians will turn back on you and say, oh, that's not loving. God defines what love is. We don't get to define what love is. First Corinthians chapter 13, Song of Solomon. Those things are what love is, if you want to define it. And uh, love is patient, kind, long-suffering. It does not keep tra- wrong of, uh, uh, track of wrongs committed against it. That's in First Corinthians chapter 13. So God defines what love is. And the greatest love is somebody lays down their life for their friend. That's the greatest love that anybody could have for anyone else. But what the world considers love is not Love, it is something different. So with all of this, as we went through these different things, we saw, uh, like, why don't we cuss? Well, because God's word says we should not cuss. Chapter 3, verse 8, put away filthy language. Why don't you sleep around, so to speak? Because in chapter 3, verse 5, God says, put to death sexual immorality. You see how this works? Now, With both of these first two, and I have some more, with the first two, does the world love to cuss? The answer is yes. I mean, all you have to do is go out there. And uh, I once worked with a guy in a paragraph. He would say probably 20 bad words. Every word was, oh, you know, if you were punched every time he said a bad word you'd be knocked out and he, you'd be he'd be hitting you while you're on the ground i'm just going man get you know, clean this up and he goes oh i know my wife tells me i need to clean it up a little bit a little bit i mean you, you need to sacrifice that tongue and not speak anymore you know, that's how bad it was and god's and you have that attitude because god says just don't don't do that remember he doesn't love you any more or less If you're not conforming to that, but he wants us to conform to this. And don't sleep around. Does the world like to sleep around? Is is there a movement for sexual freedom of all kinds right now? There is. You know what the next thing on the docket is? Pedophilia. That's the next thing. I promise you within the next 10 years, it is going to be considered a persecuted class. It's going to be entered into the LGBTQRSTUVWXYZ, and and it's going to be in that class. Now, do we consider that wrong? Even people who are pagans consider that wrong. Some, not all, but they consider that wrong as well. That an adult would go have a physical relationship with a child. God says that is an abomination to do that. And after that, you know, bestiality, that everything is going to be open. And God says, no, 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 you, you should not do this. This is why God's wrath is coming because the world is calling good evil and evil good. Well, why don't you approve of those who lie because it is for the greater good? Now, this uh, deals with the realm of politics. Is there lying in politics? Is the sky blue? Is there water in the ocean? Is there sand on the shore? The answer is yes. And when people get caught, 
you know, they prevaricate, they splice words. Oh, well, that's not exactly what I mean. Let's, I misspoke, a clarification. I mean, you see it every single week when somebody gets caught in a lie. And the scripture tells us in verse 9 of chapter 3, don't lie to each other. And so when a politician lies, and we all lie, who in here hasn't told a lie? Anyone? How about today? Who in here hasn't told a lie today? You see how common it is? You know, we've all lied at some particular point. You get um, pulled over by a police officer. Maybe you haven't been pulled over in several years, but when you got pulled over, uh, the officer says, do you know why I pulled you over? And you know stinking well why he pulled you over. You go, no, officer, why? You're lying to the officer because you don't want the consequences to come. And God says, don't lie. Don't be telling untruths or, again, outright lies. And why don't you get involved in angry protests and cause damage? Now, are we hitting close to home today? All I have to do is talk about Oregon and Washington, D.C. and Minneapolis, Minnesota, all of these places where people went in and they started rioting and they caught things on fire and they stole. You guys have seen the railroads up in Los Angeles, right, where they've busted into the cars and they pull out all the stuff that's on the inside, probably one of your Amazon packages, and they rip it open and they take the stuff out. There is so much trash on the railroad track, 17 cars derailed because it hit the trash going uh, up in L.A. And they have to do something about it. There's thievery going on there. You know, we're not supposed to steal. That's one of the things maybe you used to be involved in before you believe in God says, do not steal. Well, Ecclesiastes, and, and you know, well, first, Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, we're to put away anger, rage, and malice. So you don't get involved in a protest lighting things on fire and killing people and destroying things. We're not supposed to do that. You know, when they're pulling down these statues, the Old Testament said, do not remove the markers of your ancestors. You know, if they set up a property boundary, do not take it down. If you set up a monument, do not pull it down. And what's the world doing? In the United States, they're pulling them down. Why? I'm going to just tell you the truth. It's because of communism. Communism says, get rid of the history so there's nothing to fall back onto. So this next generation growing up, they won't know who the statues were. I don't care if it was Robert E. Lee or General Grant. We need to know the history of what took place to be able to instruct our children, this was wrong, this was right. This commemorates that particular act. That's what we're supposed to do. But if you pull all that down, there's nothing for the kids to go back. You don't teach them history. You wipe out their history. You give them a new history, one that you concoct. And if you do that, you will be successful in perpetrating evil which is out there. Now, going on with this, why don't you get involved in angry protests and damage? Colossians 3.8 tells us to put away anger, rage, and malice. But also, when these people are not prosecuted, this is what Scripture says happens. Ecclesiastes 8.11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. If you don't prosecute the evil, more evil is going to result. Do we see more evil resulting? Yes. And we stand up, we say, this is unjust. And they say, oh, no, you have been unjust through your ancestral history, and therefore this needs to take place, and you need to step back and let it happen. That, that is just craziness. And, and see, if you say, I don't agree, the world hates you. And that's where the world is right now. With righteousness, they hate righteousness those who are of the world well why don't you approve of those who do those who get involved 
in wickedness like that. Romans one thirty two says, the wicked approve of others who act in a wicked fashion. They, they actually give their approval. If somebody is acting in a wicked fashion, those who are wicked will say, that's good, that deserved, that, that was necessary to take place. And you see threats all the time against politicians that are out there by people who don't like what they're doing. And, and so they'll call the mob on them, so to speak. And they develop a history and a false narrative out there in order to get the people to comply. And they encourage wickedness. And God says, don't do that. Why don't you separate people according to their race? Why don't you grant privilege based on race? Well, we just read it. And Verse 11, chapter 3, neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. And Galatians 3.28 says, neither male nor female. We are all equal. We are all part of humanity. And if we start separating people or giving privilege according to race or reverse racism, which is out there, uh, the, the way of the world says whites have benefited over time Therefore, and they have suppressed other races. Therefore, it's time for the other races to suppress the white race or for the blacks to suppress the Asians. And, and if you go over to Europe and in Russia and places like that and down in Africa, there are races that are fighting against other races. And God says, don't do that. You know, in our judicial system, you have... Um, Lady Justice. Do you know who Lady Justice is? She's a woman. She's holding a pair of scales, you know, the old style scales that have two little platters like that, holds them up. And, and she is blind. Justice is blind. That's the way it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to act according to race. And why don't we create chaos or a crisis to implement change? You ever heard the phrase, don't let a good crisis go to waste? Ron Emanuel said that, if you know who he is. It's because our God is the God of order. He doesn't like chaos. And if you stand up and speak against chaos, those who perpetrate it hate you. That's what the Bible says the world will do. Well, why don't you approve of homosexuality? Well, Leviticus 18 and 20, Romans 1, 26, and 1 Corinthians 6, 9. It says, don't, don't. Now, these are all desires that we have. And God says, just don't act on them. Having the desires doesn't make us evil. It's the evil nature that makes us evil. And carrying out those evil desires, that's what makes us sinful. Everybody is going to have sinful thoughts. Do you carry them out? You know, in Canada, they just passed, or they're trying to, no, they just passed this bill, S202. It was introduced into the Canadian Parliament, which makes it punishable by up to five years imprisonment if you try to do a conversion therapy, so to speak, on somebody who wants to come out of homosexuality, if you encourage them to do so, you can go to prison for five years. If you try to evangelize somebody and, and bring them out of whether it's homosexuality or whatever illicit lifestyle they have, just sexual immorality, or if it's a thief or it's a burglar or you know, um, a murderer, anything like that, Scripture says, reach out to them. Help them. Give them the truth. Tell them what God requires. If you do that with homosexuality, five years in prison. That's what's going to happen. They just passed that. And on January 19th, the CBN reported that YouTube has censored Pastor John MacArthur for saying such things as transgenderism isn't real. Took him off of YouTube because he said that. Where scripture says he created them male and female. The world hates that. They said, 
don't do that. That's hate speech. Don't talk like that. Uh, that's why we don't approve of abortion. Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Proverbs 24.11 says, Rescue those who are being led to death. Hold back those who are staggering towards slaughter. And so these are the standards of God. These are not the standards of the world. And, you know, why are people leaving blue states and moving to red states? You might think, well, I don't know, taxes or whatever. Yeah, I'm going to leave you with this. Newsom is set to uh, get something passed. It's going to raise the household taxes in the average household uh, with two incomes, $12,250 a year. And he's going to do that so that everybody can have free medical care. And in this particular bill that he wants to pass, if it's not enough money, he's going to have the legislature just with a simple majority, not two-thirds, have the ability to raise your taxes whenever they want and just say, it's going to go up. It's no longer $12,250. It's going to be $15,000. You got solar? Wonderful. Now you're going to be charged $8 per kilowatt because you have solar. And he wants to start taxing that as well. And there's other things that are going through. And, you know, final word, if if you want to follow the ways of the world, by the way, I I say that because I believe overtaxation is immoral. If the government comes and takes away what you have just to give it to others, you know, the Bible says, if a man will not work, he will not eat. And, And so we have this idea, not, not to help the homeless, help the homeless, get them into some place, get them help, but to just take money and give it to them you're falling into sin doing that and so you see all of these things these are relevant to us today what was spoken about with the church of Colossae God loves us in spite of what we do the mistakes we made but he says live like this in Proverbs twenty-eight twelve, when the righteous triumph there is great elation but when the wicked rise to power men go to red states oh, excuse me men <laughs> Men go into hiding. So you get the idea. May God give you the grace to do his will and to say no to the things of the world, to know what those are. We must know scripture. Let's pray. Father, I, I ask that you would just continually give us wisdom. And we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Some sins are without question noticeable and others are hidden But we are all guilty. There is not one sin that is greater than another. And for this, Lord, we do ask your forgiveness. For your word says, if we ask for your forgiveness, you give it to us freely. And so, Father, we pray for your grace that we may walk in it and give it to others and show love no matter what lifestyle they come from, no matter what they are into, no matter what crimes they have committed. May we be patient and kind and loving and long-suffering and just share your truth for you have given us life in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray and everyone said, please stand.